As we come now before God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther in chapter 8? We're now nearing the end of Esther, so maybe your Bible just automatically falls there by now. But if you can find Job and turn one to the left, you'll get there. That's Esther in chapter 8. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, we know that the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So, Lord, would you unfold your word now to me and to us? Help us to really hear you and to believe. Guide us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Esther in chapter 8. I'll start in verse 1 and read to the end of the chapter. Esther, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in, in their script and in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, 
and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is God's word. Now, the beginning here of chapter 8 is the end of a very full day for Esther and all the people involved in this, which started back in chapter 6. You'll remember if you were here a few weeks ago that in the middle of the night, the king, King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, however we uh, translate that name, the, the king could not sleep. And that's the core of Esther, that even in this, uh, God was working according to his providence and his governance, even in the very details of these events. So the king then is awake in the middle of the night, and in the morning, then in comes Haman, rushing in to, to try to get the king to hang Mordecai. But instead of that, uh, later that morning, the reverse occurs. And, uh, and Mordecai, instead of being hanged on the gallows, is honored. And in fact, uh, uh, Mordecai is honored, and Haman has to, has to be the one to do it. He dresses Mordecai and walks him through the streets, crying out about his honor. So then early in the afternoon, Haman finally gets home from this very embarrassing incident for him. And, and as soon as he gets home, he is rushed off to Esther's second feast, uh, which we just read about in the last chapter. And at that feast... Esther finally revealed who she was as a Jew. She revealed who Haman was as a villain and that he had had this plot to destroy the Jews. And so she asks for the king's deliverance. And that evening then, Haman is executed. So now here we are at the beginning of chapter 8 that starts on that day. It had been a full day already, but the day's not over yet. Uh, on that day now, Mordecai comes in to join the king and Esther to try to solve this problem now of the destruction of the Jews. Because even though Haman is gone, the decree still stands. Their destruction is still looming over the Jews' head. It's still a very big problem. 
uh, because, the king says, whatever is sealed with his ring, he says in verse, in verse 8, it cannot be revoked. So they can't just cancel the decree and go, huh, fixed it. It doesn't work that way. Uh, so you'll notice that the king in this text doesn't actually solve the problem. Uh, he, sa- he just gives his signet ring over, uh, which is basically his signature. That's his authority. He's basically giving them a blank check and saying, you know, I, I got rid of Haman, but now I don't know how to deal with this. Um, I, I don't know how to fix it, but if you can figure it out, here you go, here's a check, good luck. And so it's actually Esther and Mordecai then uh, who try to deal with this. Now, they can't cancel the old decree, but what they do instead is issue a new counter-decree. And the language of this, if it sounds harsh, is almost identical to the original decree. Uh, It's got even uh, some of the same wording, the strong language, uh, which may sound harsh to us, but that they could destroy or kill or annihilate uh, people. But this new decree, the counter-decree, has one key difference, that the Jews now, who are the ones that can do all these things, are not allowed to just kill, destroy, and annihilate anyone they wanted, or any Jew or any other person, they're specifically uh, permitted or encouraged to defend themselves against the enemies. In other words, they're saying if someone comes to attack you based on the original decree, you now have the king's authority to push back. You might think, oh, well, they, didn't they have that already? Come on, you know, if someone's going to slug you in the, in the face, you know, you're knee-jerk reaction is probably going to be to slug them back. But the, the main difference is that the decree actually shifts the balance of power. That the king has now put his authority on their side to the point that many even switch to their team. At the end, you can hear it. People uh, feel this switch of power and they become afraid, so they join the Jews. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 9, which we haven't read yet, many of the uh, satraps and governors and royal leaders, a lot of the high-level officials then join the Jews to defend themselves against this decree of destruction. Uh, so the new edict, now they, it's saying on the same day, the same thing can happen in Jews. You're to gather together, and, and it's, the decree is being sent out by fast horses, it says, which I don't know why that makes me chuckle. But Jews, we're to gather together and join to defend our lives on that day. And the response when that decree is sent out by the Jews is that they feast. That's the theme. That's our focus for this morning. Uh, I'm glad, but it's in the, it's mentioned at the very end, that last verse, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And I'm glad uh, that my Bible translates that word into English, feast, instead of banquet. There's nothing wrong with the word banquet, of course. It's just kind of my own listening of it. Somehow, to my English ear, the word banquet uh, sounds like something that I got to get all dressed up for. I have to like hold my pinky out while I'm drinking the tea or whatever's part of it that I'm going to get in trouble if I use the wrong fork. That's what a banquet sounds like to me, but the word feast has different connotations in my mind. I think of kind of Knights of the Round Table and Renaissance area, or maybe uh, Thanksgiving, but somehow a feast, you can just grab a turkey leg while the grease runs down your hand and just munch into it and have a good old time. That's closer to what's happening uh, here. Um, In fact, 
the, the uh, food is an, an expression then of, of just a really good day. Come home from a good day and let's feast. We get a similar sort of thing in the English expression. You're, when you feast your eyes on something, usually it's when you're challenged. Feast your eyes on this, and then I don't know what you do, dance or something. But when you say feast your eyes on this, or the person feasted their eyes on something, that person is looking at that thing with pleasure, or with admiration. You just want to kind of take it all in. And that's what the feasting then is about. We see feasts uh, all over the book of Esther. You've probably noticed them. Esther has some. The king has some. And the book even opens uh, in chapter 1 on a feast when King Ahasuerus is throwing this big uh, feast. But his feast in the beginning of the book is different in one key way. The chapter one feast thrown by the king, he, he throws it for all his officials and nobles and governors and, and the Persian army, it says in verse three of chapter one. So all these high level people come in for this big feast that lasts, lasts a long time. And Esther does not tell us, the book of Esther itself does not tell us why he throws that feast. But uh, there's a historian, Herodotus, who lived about the same period in the 5th century BC that gives us, I think, some insight here. We know that the Persian Empire and King Ahasuerus was preparing to expand his already large kingdom by attacking Greece. So he was planning this big invasion. He ended up losing that invasion, by the way. But he was trying to gather resources and people to build some support for this big invasion that he was going to set up. So it's likely, then, that this feast that's happening at the beginning of Esther is happening because he's trying to display his power and his push on things. And he's trying to gain some support for this invasion on Greece. In other words, the king's feast at the beginning is to get something. He throws a feast to try to get something. But the Jews' feast at the end is different. They feast because they've been given something. Though the actual day of their deliverance is still to come, it's in chapter 9, the day of the decree has not yet happened, they know that their deliverance is secure. And so they feast. And, and this, this is the kind of feast that even introverts can get in on. If you're an introvert, you know, wear it with pride. If you don't like big crowds, hey, that's okay. Because this is a, a feast that brings rest. A feast that brings celebration. It's not just about the crowds or the amount of people. It's not just about the food or the gathering. The feast is about, you could hear it in, in verse 16, is about light and gladness and joy and honor. It's about celebrating all that the Lord had done. And so, uh, you know, we get the impression as we read through it that they, they didn't, you know, gather up and go, hey, let's take a vote. Who wants to have a feast? 
you know, kind of decide, straw poll. It just kind of, so you get the sense that it just kind of, the feast spontaneously happens when the, when the news of the new edict comes through, that, that everybody just kind of drags their barbecue grill out into the street and pulls out their frisbees and their tambourines and their lawn chairs, and they play and they eat and they sing and they dance late into the night because they're glad. A feast is a natural response to really seeing the goodness of God. Now, we, we know we see, it's not just in Esther, although it's a prominent part of Esther to see feasting. We see feasting spread across the whole Bible. So uh, in Exodus chapter 5, Moses says uh, to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may feast to me in the wilderness. And then after the exile, when the Jews had been carried away by other nations, when they return, which is about the same period that Esther has written, when they return in, in Ezra, it says after they rebuilt the temple that they renew the Passover feast. It's one of the first things they do. And in the final pages of the Bible, in, in the end of Revelation, that all believers who are with God are at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Most often, these feasts are celebrated because God had brought the people out of one thing and into another thing. So in Exodus, it's because God had brought them out of slavery and into freedom. In Ezra, it's because God had brought them out of exile and into their homeland. And in Revelation, it's because God had brought the people out of the domain or kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Fast, feasting then, feasting is a picture of the Christian life. It's a celebration of having been brought out of the power of sin and under the righteousness of Jesus. Now, that said, that feasting is a big part of the Christian life. It's not the only way that we can view the Christian life. We know that there are other images of the Christian life in the scriptures. Uh, sometimes the Christians are described as, as soldiers, ones who are to fight the good fight of faith. Sometimes Christians are described as athletes, which are to, not literally, but you get the image, to run the race that is set before us. And sometimes Christians are described as, as farmers who are gathering harvests of righteousness. But in all of these things, the Christian is also a party guest invited to the table of the Lord. We know that in one sense, the Christian life is, is work, and, and that's true. But in another sense, the Christian life is also rest and celebration in the finished work of Jesus, who is our Savior. Uh, we know from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, getting fancy there, but you'll recognize it, the very first question um, is what is the chief end of man? 
You probably recognize that. In other words, a different way to say that is, what's the goal of life? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's two things in there, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And those two things aren't separate. They're intertwined. That uh, one of the main ways for us to glorify God is by enjoying him forever. It's not just that he wants us to be happy, but he wants us to be happy to have joy in him. So that we say, for instance, and we see the Lord and go, oh, Lord, you are good. And we feast. Or, oh, Lord, you, you are strong. Oh, Lord, you are wise. Oh, Lord, you are, you are righteous. I'd forgotten. Lord, you are truth. You are merciful. You are, you are just. You are love. Lord, you are God. And so I will, I'll rest in you. I will lift up my face and bask in your glory, just like I were basking in the sun on the beach by the water. You should just take it all in to feast upon the Lord. If we see the Christian life as drudgery, something is wrong. It's different than that. Jesus talks about something that's helpful for us in in Luke, in the parable, what's often called the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Uh, You probably know the gist of the parable, but very briefly, uh, the son that wants to go off on his own and do his own thing eventually bumps into, uh, comes to his senses and decides to come home. And when he returns to the father, he says in his own mind, I'm going to ask to be my father's hired servant. And when he gets there, his father does not hire him. He gives him something better. This is Luke chapter 15, starting in verse uh, 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and and shoes on his feet and, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And then from there, the older son has an interaction with the father that ends like this, with the father saying in verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
here in the parable, the father's generous giving. Pull out the best robe. Give it, put, a, put a ring on his hand with authority. Put, put, put new shoes on him. Let's bring out the fatted calf and, and turn, turn up the Pandora, crank up the music, and let's dance. Uh, he says at the end, it's right. It's fitting to celebrate. Uh, this son of mine once was as good as dead, and now he's alive, just as the Jews and Esther were once doomed to destruction and now are delivered to life why wouldn't they feast? For Christians, by the grace of God and Jesus, we once were lost, but now we're found. Why wouldn't we feast? And for some, I know that talking about feasting and really this kind of, you know, abundant joy makes us feel conflicted. Because for some of us, the feasting may feel selfish. Perhaps we feel a little bit guilty about it, that I'm not supposed to enjoy this much. Or, or maybe we might feel like it's prideful in some ways to feast, that it somehow feels wrong to celebrate. It, it sometimes feels to some people like I'm stealing a cookie from the jar, you know that feeling? And you feel a little, you like the cookie, but you feel guilty about having it because mom doesn't know. But feasting here in the, according to the Bible is different. God knows about this feast. It's his feast. And he's the one that's actually inviting us to the table saying, come, eat up, enjoy this that I've given. It is not selfish or rude to eat at his table. He wants you there. He invites you there. So why not? Eat. It's not a celebration to honor ourselves. It's really a celebration of God. To share in the Father's joy that his child has come home. So it really brings glory to God to feast, to partake in all of his gracious gifts. Why wouldn't we feast? Still, we know that many do not feast, and there are reasons that they give for that. Uh, Jesus tells another parable in the previous chapter, in chapter 14 of Luke, that's much more sobering. Uh, he says this in Luke chapter 14. I'll read starting in verse 15. This is another parable here. When one of those who reclined at table with him, Jesus, when he heard these things, Jesus said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. First, can you hear there how wide is the invitation of the master? That he wants his house full, the feast, the table, every seat filled. And yet, many who were invited find reason not to be at the feast May, but may I be excused, please? Because I need to tend the field. I need to check the oxen. Because I need to spend time with my wife. Notice here, at least in this parable, that the things that keep these people from the feast are not the, quote, big ones. It wasn't drugs. It wasn't prostitutes. Or violence or, you know, riotous drunkenness. Although there's sin in these as well that may keep us from feasting at the table of the Lord. But the things here that are keeping them from the feast are their own land, their own oxen, their own spouse. It's not that those things are bad in themselves, But those things for these people had taken priority. So when the person comes to say, come, the feast is ready, they go, feast with God? Maybe later, because I'm busy. And then later never comes. The invitation in this story is revoked. And instead, the master invites the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame, those are the ones who will see the real value of the feast, see that they've been given this by grace because of, and not because of their position or power. There is so much that wants to stand in the way of our coming to the table of the Lord. Those things that stand in the way are not only our possessions, although that's also a big one. It's not only certain people and relations that may stand in the way, but the things that stand in the way of coming to the table of the Lord are really our own attitudes of the heart. And it may keep us from feasting with him. In Esther... When the counter decree is issued, this new decree that the Jews now are the ones with the power, they can defend themselves against any enemies that attack. When that decree is issued, the city of Susa, which was the hub, uh, one of the main cities where the king was, they began to shout and rejoice. 
And you can kind of feel the rejoicing spread as the, the couriers ride with their announcement of the decree across the empire, that you can see a, a ripple of relief and rejoicing happening for all the Jews. But even though all the Jews communally are rejoicing and feasting, having light and gladness and honor together, there may have been some individual Jews that missed it, that just missed that feast altogether. Don't know why, it doesn't say this, but we can imagine reasons why they might have missed the feast. Perhaps there were some that crossed their arms and said, well, it's about time God did something about this. They get so caught up in their own sense of what God ought to have done and the way he ought to have done things. They miss what he actually does. And so miss the feast. Or there might have been others that were so paralyzed by the first decree that was going to doom them to destruction, that when the couriers came to announce this new decree, they were so scared that they just ran and hid and plugged their ears and thought, I can't take it. I, I, I can't handle this. And so they missed the decree of salvation for them. They missed the feast. Or others that when the, when the decree of salvation came, they heard the decree, but perhaps got started planning for the big day. And right at the very moment, and what are we going to do? How are we going to get this done? And trying to figure out all the details of that way. And they just did not pause to celebrate the fact that the Lord had saved them. These attitudes run deep. Sin is really radical. It runs down to the deepest parts of our heart, but it just reminds us how deeply, really, we need Jesus. How much we really need to be saved from sin and from death so that we can actually relax and rest and just sit down and eat and enjoy our God. The events of Esther are just uh, one example of the way the Lord works for salvation, how he does save. But it's not limited to just them. The Lord works in peoples, not just in Persia, but all over the earth. The last place we'll go, Isaiah in chapter 25. I love this section. Um, Isaiah 25 Starting in verse 6, this is what the Lord says. Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day. Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is our God. We've waited for him. We've put our trust and dependence upon him, and and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I know that life has ups and downs. Not every day is happy skipping. But we also know that any feast we experience now is just a foretaste of the feast to come for all who wait for the Lord. Just like the Jews in Persia, deliverance is secure, but the day of its fullness is still in front of us. That's exciting. Something to hope for and to look for. In the meantime, the Lord teaches us to feast. He gives us reason uh, to celebrate, to rest, to have joy in him by showing us himself in his word. We can see how he works in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews and all of those throughout the scripture We will glorify God by enjoying him forever as he brings us to just stop for a moment and feast our eyes on God. Would you pray with me? Would you help us to see what is really true? To rest and rejoice in you. To live as Christians at the table that you've set before us. So that we can see the extravagant grace that you have given. What a good God you are. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.